Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. We are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. My name is Robert Winfrey. I'm your host, and per usual, I suppose I should do the please like, comment, subscribe, share, tell a friend, etc., etc. bit here. Thank you very much in advance. Uh, what do we got on the show tonight? Tonight, we have UFC 268, which took place yesterday, and was a pretty darn good card from start to finish. Uh, it really was. So we'll be going over everything that went down there. Uh, and we have a preview. UFC on ESPN Plus 55? We'll check that. I'm pretty sure. Yes, 55. Uh, headlined by Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez. Really better hope nothing happens to either of those fights. That's not a terribly deep card. Not that there's nothing there, but it's not terribly deep, especially for main event stuff. So we'll preview that, and that's kind of it. Was it a... Most of the news that came out, such as it was, was related to <clears throat> uh, UFC 268 or in the build-up to it, so there's not a whole lot to... Uh, news-wise going forward, but I imagine that will change for the next week, because once things settle down in terms of activity, certain stories start picking up and gaining more momentum and whatnot, so... Uh, yeah, that's what we've got, and of course something crazy could always break while we're recording, that happens from time to time. Right, with that out of the way, let's jump in to, last night, UFC 268. Your main event... Uh, Kamar Usman defeats Colby Covington via unanimous decision, 48-47 twice and 149-46. This wasn't like their first fight for the most part. Um, it wasn't nearly as frantically paced, for a variety of reasons. Uh, some strategic on both guys' parts. Full disclosure, when doing this live... I scored this 48-47 for Covington. I gave Usman rounds 1 and 2, uh, pretty clearly. I gave Covington 3, 4, and 5. Now, here's the thing about this. Um, round 3... Round 3 I feel okay about. I acknowledge there might be some uh, discussion there. Round 4 was clearly Covington's. Round five's another one that... I can accept was a little bit close. Five, I feel, frankly, five, I feel the least confident of all of the rounds that I scored. Uh, the other four rounds, I will, I will stand by again. Three, okay, three, I can see arguments, but I'll stand by. I'll stand by giving that one to Covington. Um, I'm just, that fifth round was mm, a little bit awkward to score. Uh, for, again, for a variety of reasons. The first bit of this fight, when Kamara was able to faint, kind of draw out Covington, and then uh, land some good counters. I mean, Kamara Usman hits really hard. He badly hurt Covington in the second round with some left hooks. He's completely stuffed. He stuffed... Uh, I don't know that I want to say all of the takedowns that were thrown at him. There was one in the... I think it was the third. Don't quote me on that, but I think it was the third, where Covington tried a takedown... Usman sprawling and down blocking is, I mean, there's a reason no one's really taking him down that way. But on this particular attempt, Covington was able to get, uh, get around. He spun around to the back and drove Usman forward and 
Usman's knees both hit the mat. Now, there's an argument to be had about what constitutes a takedown in MMA versus wrestling. To be clear, in wrestling, that would have scored two points easily. Like that, that's in amateur wrestling, that's a two-point takedown. No real argument. Most of the the way they have to try and track these statistics for MMA, you can't really do it every time someone, every time somebody's knees touch or every time someone's butt hits the mat. Like they, you can't call all of those takedowns because a takedown in MMA is something different. You generally have to establish a degree of control. I'm sympathetic to that argument, especially if we're doing a takedown where the where the fighters are facing each other. Um, I think that's a very fair way to put it. If if someone's got your back, though, if they get you down, I mean, they were giving Khabib, well, Khabib was slamming more than anything. I'm just of the opinion, I think that was, I think that should have been scored, my opinion. Because of the position of all the relevant parties, I think it should have been scored. Now, they're not going to give it to him, and again, I can see the argument, so I'm not going to die on the hill. But for the record, I thought I would have scored that. Uh, Usman's problem started when he stopped fainting. His jab was doing pretty good work, but it wasn't as active as normal as it has been his last few fights. Part of that is the opposite stances. Um, jabbing against a guy when you're in opposite stances like that is just harder. It, it's not a, it's not your first weapon the way it is when you're in closed stance. And Covington fought this whole thing southpaw. Usman fought the whole thing. Or, uh, Covington would shift on some of his strikes. Um, which I thought was a nice little adaptation from him. It led to him landing some pretty decent punches along the way. He just doesn't have great power. Uh, Covington kicked a lot more, uh, for better and for worse. He landed a few decent leg kicks. Um, Usman's knees are just really banged up, and he's been public about them. So the leg kicks, I think, were a good adaptation from him. He also landed some nice body kicks. Uh, In the fourth, he caught Usman breathing in with a body kick which is the worst time to get hit in the body, and kind of folded him up with it. Uh, I mean, the fourth round is the only round that Covington unanimously won, so that was a good flurry from him. He hurt him with that body kick. Had a good flurry of punches to end the round. Um, Again, I have no issue with Usman winning this fight. Uh, 48-47 for Usman is a perfectly acceptable scorecard. Might even be more accurate than what I was doing live. So this is not me saying that anyone got robbed, etc. I... There's a few things that that went on in the discourse around this fight that I think bothered me a little bit. One, there's a lot of people who, because they dislike Covington as a character, wanted to downplay how close he was able to make this fight in places. And I think that's largely down to personal bias... Uh, whether they uh, whether they acknowledge it or not. Um, Covington looked a little bit stiff through the first couple of rounds. I mean, I think there were some there were some re- fair tweets throughout those first two rounds, like how is Covington doing worse here than he did in their first fight? Uh, and I think that's again he got badly hurt at the end of the second, persevered, kept going, and then again on my card won the last three rounds. Whether or not you agree with me or on that on my scoring there is fine. You can disagree with me. And look, if you say Usman won the fifth, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not 
That is not a scorecard I'm going to die on. You say you disagree with me on the third, we can disagree. And we can have a co we can have a conversation, no problem. But I, I disagree with that one. I, I think Covington's volume was more impactful in the third than Usman's power punching. That's not always the case, but I definitely think it was in that round. I think Usman just didn't do enough as that round progressed. So, for whatever my take on that is worth. Uh, that said, I mean, it's impossible to come away from this fight and not be impressed with Kamaru Usman. His power punching is still very much a threat. His jab is still very much a problem. His kicking game has come up a little bit. Both men were more active with kicks in this fight in their first. Their first fight was just kind of a crappy boxing match, to be candid. Uh, his takedown... Part of his takedown defense being so good, uh, it stands at 100%, I believe, is still the official number. It was coming into this fight, if nothing else. Uh, he was good about his offensive takedowns. And he still... He didn't take... I think he took Covington down technically once, but that might have been more a position reversal. Um, he's he's good about getting his own takedowns. That's part of it. The other part of it is, man, his again, his down blocking and his sprawl is... And the down blocking is more important than the sprawl, technically speaking. Sprawling is what you do at the end, like the last thing you do in sequence. Um, it is It is nuts. It is very, very good. He's... I think someone, I think whoever's going to beat him, wrestling is going to be a component of their success. I, I genuinely believe that. I don't quite know how it's going to be implemented, but I know it's going to be important because if all, if if you don't make him think about the wrestling at all, then you're just striking with a guy whose striking has become very good and who hits very, very hard. I think I was a little surprised by Usman's defense, which wasn't great here. Um... And some of that has to do with his lack of fainting. Once he stopped fainting, again, in the, the third and the fourth round, his faints kind of go away. And he stops being able to then either time Covington or pretty clearly evade his offense. And because he's just trying to close distance in a hurry to land a punch, Covington's able to set up on him a little bit more and able to find a little bit more success. And I think that's something he's going to have to keep working on. Now that everyone, for a while, it's not like you didn't think the man could have a bit of power, but his power wasn't, I think it wasn't as widely acknowledged as it is now. You know, now, Usman's punching power is front and center in everybody's mind. Consequently, his setups have to be even better. Uh, not, just, not just his jab, which is very good, but... You've got to be able to build on that, and you have to be able to fake and faint your way in. Because if you just kind of close without that stuff, he runs into some problems. But I'd have to double-check this, but I think that's part of where Burns caught him, slipping just a little bit in their fight. Was just absent any of his setups of his or any of his feints, and he just kind of got clipped. Um, Mosfidal had some success against him in places. Um... For very different reasons, but it, it's a thing he's got to do. He's got to be very, very mindful going forward of his setups because you can't just surprise people with the fact that you hit like a truck anymore. Everyone knows now that that's how hard you hit. So, another win for Usman, who is undefeated in the UFC. Look, at this point, if you want to make the argument that Kamaru Usman is the best welterweight of all time, I don't... 
you can have a debate around that, but there's not really a... You don't wind up arguing tremendously meritorious points. You're, you don't get to point out, no, so-and-so is better because of X. Because at this point, that's just not... You might still have George St. Pierre ranked above him all time in the welterweight division. You might. And I think that's a defensible position at the moment. I... And at, because at this point, what we wind up arguing is a couple, is like the following points. Kamar Usman has never lost in the UFC, period. George did. Only twice, but there's still no way around it. He's got losses on his record under the promotional banner. Kamar Usman doesn't. Full stop. George had more title defenses than Usman has had. No discussion around that. Full stop. So, are we going to argue which of those you which of those do you weight more? And that's kind of the key here. Which of those do you rate more? Not which is objectively more impressive, because frankly, I don't think either of them is objectively more impressive than the other. It kind of comes down to what you what you interpret. So, uh, if you have him number one now, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to say you're wrong. It, I, I think it's a perfectly defensible position. I th I think if you want it, I think George rates all-time higher because he won the middleweight title. And that and being a two-weight world champion is such a big deal, at the moment at least. It's, it's such a big accomplishment. I mean, in all fairness, especially going from welterweight to middleweight, 170 to, 150 to 185 is a big jump. I mean... Uh, one of the commenters uh, on my report, I forget your name, so I apologize. I'm not trying to... I, I said this publicly over there, so I'm not insulting anyone. Speculated that Usman could beat Israel Adesanya for the middleweight title, and I'm a little bit more... Like, you guys... I get that Usman's very, very good. And look, if Usman tomorrow decided he wanted to fight at middleweight, are there middleweights he could beat? Yes. Yes, there are. Not gonna... That's very much true. However, understand a little bit about Kamaru Usman. He's a pretty big welterweight. He's six feet tall and he's you know, bricked up. He would be an average to slightly below average middleweight. There are some very, very large men who compete in that weight class. I mean, put him next to Paulo Costa. Now, I'm not saying that if they fought, Costa would win automatically because he's the larger man. That's silly. I am saying that the 15-pound gap between welterweight and middleweight is significant. There's a reason a lot of guys who are uh, middleweight, who are welterweights who struggle to make weight become... Uh, th sometimes they become straight-up afterthoughts at middleweight. I mean, look, we can... Johnny Hendricks' career fell apart for a lot of reasons, but that you make that guy fight... He was not an especially tall welterweight. They made it, He had to fight at middleweight because he couldn't manage his weight. He was a midget at middleweight. I mean, he was just straight-up... I think he was smaller than everyone he fought when he fought at, at 185 for the UFC. Look at Kelvin Gastelum. 
Look, does Kelvin Gastelum have some good wins at middleweight? Yeah, he does. He gave Israel Adesanya absolute hell for a couple of rounds of their five-round fight. I'm, I'm not taking anything away from him in that respect. But look at the size of him. Relative to everyone he's fighting, he's always smaller. And that's started to cause Gastelum problems. It's part of the reason he struggled a bit recently. So, I, I just... I especially when you consider a few other things. Look, in a straight wrestling match, does Israel Adesanya have much for Kamaru Usman? Not really. In MMA, Usman is... I don't think Usman wins because he's bigger. That's Again, that's a gross oversimplification of his skill set. But he does get to be the bigger man when he fights him at, at welterweight. If he's got to fight someone like Adesanya, who's, what, three inches, uh, two to three inches taller... Longer in both arm and leg. And while Usman has power, his defense is a little bit... Look at the number of times Colby Covington made contact here. Now, I'm not saying Usman would fight Adesanya the same way. I'm aware that there's differences. But if someone with Covington setups is able to land that frequently, what do you think Israel Adesanya would do? Now, those two don't want to fight each other, and that's fair. I'm not... I'm not here saying how dare they not fight each other. I am saying that's a big jump. And Adesanya might just be a worse stylistic matchup for Usman than you think. Uh, Usman is... Look, as I said, are there middleweights on the UFC roster he could beat? Yes. Are there middleweights on the UFC roster that are ranked that he could beat? I'd probably buy that. Uh... Do I think he'd do I think he'd beat Adesanya? I I do not. I'm I I, I do not think he would beat Adesanya. Now, again, that's not really a fight that's on the horizon for either man. I mean, let me put it to you like this also as far as Usman at middleweight. I don't think I'd favor I would not favor him to beat Robert Whitaker. Not saying he couldn't, I'm saying, you know, who do I lean? Who do I think would win? I, I would not favor him to beat Whitaker. I I would favor him to beat Gastelum. Let me pull up the UFC's middleweight rankings just out of idle curiosity. Because do I think he'd beat Vit Here's kind of the other big one. Do I think he'd beat Vittori? Uh, I don't... Okay, here's a slightly controversial one. I don't think he'd beat Derek Brunson. Now, not saying he couldn't. He hits hard enough and Brunson's chin has been cracked. But I think the size disparity at that point and some of what they both choose to do as far as how they fight, I think that would go bad. I don't think that would go Usman's way necessarily. And would I pick him to beat Marvin Vittori? Stylistically, maybe. Uh, Cannoneer? It's an interesting one, actually. I might like his chances against Cannoneer. Again, some of this comes down to, you know, style at this point is kind of the thing. I mean, look, when we get to the bottom part of middleweight, would I pick him to beat Kevin Holland or, you know, Brad Tavares? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I would. Um, would I be shot? Tavares might give him problems. Might. I, but, look, what, so are there ranked guys he could beat? Yeah. Yeah, there are. I might favor him over... I might favor him over Darren Till. 
have to think about that one. That that one, it's a little bit interesting just because Till has power, and the way Till fights, I think, doesn't let Usman use a lot of the setups that he likes to use. So, uh, again, the point is not that he couldn't find success at middleweight. I think he could, but I, once you get to the top end of that division, I don't know. I'm I'm less sold on that idea. Uh, but he is somewhat fortunately he doesn't need to worry about that. He needs to worry about the next guy up at welterweight. You know that's who he should be. That's who he's looking at now. It's who he should be focused on. Um, what was the other thing? Okay, I, I need to. Here's the other. The last thing about the immediate aftermath of this fight that I need to kind of touch on very briefly. Um. In the immediate aftermath of the fight, like, like, final bell rings, Covington and Usman go kind of face-to-face, and they both give each other respect. They don't like each other still, but they they kind of drop the promotional shtick. They say some complimentary things about each other, and Covington's post-fight interview was essentially, you know, Usman was the better man tonight. Uh, but I'm still getting better. You haven't seen the best of me. It's been my dream to headline Madison Square Garden, so whether you love me or whether you hate me, thank you, and you still haven't seen the best of me. And people responded more or less positively to this. And then at the post-fight presser, so, you know, an hour later, give or take, Covington is kind of back on the shtick. And I understand people's frustration with this. His shtick is deliberately grating. It is there to make him a, a bad guy. It's there to make him a heel. And I I saw some people, more than one, uh, across various social media platforms and whatnot, going, why did he have to default back to that? You know, you had this great moment where he shed the persona and he was, you know, somewhat warmly received for doing so. And... I think, again, on a purely emotional level, I understand the question. You know, Covington, absent his shtick, uh, his shtick colors everything, the character. And the reality is, Covington is a very, very good fighter. You may not like him, I'm not asking you to. But this guy got dropped bad in the second round, persevered, and won at least two of the following rounds from the champion. Nobody has taken, nobody in the entire, in Kamaru Usman's entire UFC career thus far, nobody has taken more rounds from him than Colby Covington. Covington is, I think, the only one who can consistently pose a a threat to him round to round. I mean, Burns took one, then got stopped in the second. I gave Masvidal the first round of their first fight. Lost the other four, and I think I gave Usman the first round of their rematch, and then he got knocked out in the second. Uh, Tyron Woodley got no rounds. Uh, it, it's just, it's not easy to it's not easy to even win a round against Kamar Usman. That's how good he is. And Covington has been able to muddy those waters about who's winning rounds consistently across ten or so rounds of fighting. That's that's certainly an indicator of how good the man is. Now, if you all don't remember the when the story behind Covington adopting this persona, 
You may not remember this. Um, but I do. Vividly. And Covington has now told this story a few times, and no one's actively refuted it. Probably because he's telling the truth about this. When Covington fought Damian Maya, this was his... What was this for his UFC? How many fights in was he? Uh, okay, so... Covington originally debuts in 2014, wins his first three, loses to Worley Alves via sort of random guillotine choke. Then rebounds, wins a couple of fights. Um, so he submits Jonathan Munier, TKO's Max Griffin. This is strikes on the ground. A little bit of a rarity for him. He's not much of a ground and pound artist. Then he wins two fights in a row by decision, Brian Barberina and Dong Hyun Kim. Neither of these are especially compelling fights unless you're kind of a ner fight nerd. I am a fight nerd, so... Then he goes into the Damian Maya fight. This is October of 2017. And the way he tells it, and again, you may not like the man, but I have no reason to believe he is lying about this because... The UFC has done this in the past to other people. They tell him that the the Damian Maya fight, I believe, was the last one on his contract at the time. And they say, win, lose, or draw, you're done. Your fights haven't been very good. Whatever it was. So Covington goes into that fight, which is being held in Sao Paulo, Brazil, against Damian Maya, former title former two-time middleweight title challenge, uh, former, sorry, he had fought at this point for the middleweight belt, and I think he'd fought for the welterweight belt as well. This was... this after Maya had fought Woodley? I think it was. Yeah, right after Maya had fought Woodley. And... He adopts this antagonistic persona. If you'll remember the build to that, he was insulting Brazil and Maya and ev like, spraying the block, so to speak. Like, that's what he did. To rile up the fans, to make people care about him, and lo and behold, it worked. It got him a new deal. He fought for the interim title immediately after that. And you know, beats Rafael Dos Anjos to do so. Goes on to fight Robbie Lawler. Fights for the belt. Like, this persona that he has adopted saved his job, saved his career. And saw him achieve success that he never would have seen otherwise. And you're, first of all, knowing that, you're a little bit surprised he's defaulting back to it. Second, this is another thing about his career. If you take away the antagonistic persona, what is Colby Covington as a fighter? And the look, I can tell you the answer. I, I want you to think about it for just a second. Pause if you want to. I, I want you to come up with an answer. Because I can, I'm going to tell you mine. Absent his antagonism of certain segments of the fan base, Colby Covington is the second best welterweight in the world who has now lost twice to the current champion. So let me ask you the logical follow-up question to that in the aftermath of this fight. 
what use does the UFC have for the second best fighter in a division who can't beat the champion? And the answer to that is shockingly little. Not necessarily nothing, but you find yourself when you're when you're in that spot, sometimes the UFC will keep you around. They kept Joseph Benavidez around for a long time when he was the second best flyweight in the world and couldn't beat Demetrius Johnson. I think the UFC did that in part because they kept waiting for Johnson to lose so that they could then slot Benavidez back in there, but the UFC's relationship with the flyweight division is its own thing. They kept Rich Franklin around at a time when the business model was very, very different. They have also had a history, a fairly long one, of looking at fighters in this position that Covington finds himself in and saying, fare thee well. And saying, goodbye, good luck. Maybe we'll see you in a few years if you keep winning, maybe not. They do that all the time. They do that all the time to top fighters in divisions who can't beat the champion, especially if their fighting style is not especially fan-friendly. And while I tend to enjoy Covington's fights for a variety of reasons, I'm not going to pretend that his style is fan-friendly. There's a... is generally fan-friendly. There's a reason the UFC said we're going to cut you, whether you, after the Damian Maya fight, regardless of what you do regardless of the outcome of the fight. Now, he finds himself again in this position now where what is his value to the company? And again, as just an observer, I get that his shtick is tiring. I get that you don't like it. I don't especially care for it. But he has to, if you're an MMA fighter and you're in his position, what do you do? I mean this in all sincerity. Think about this for a second. You just fought, you just main evented Madison Square Garden fighting for the world title. Your second title shot against the same guy and you come up short again. What did the UFC do to a bunch of people who have done that? If you can't get over that hump for whatever reason, but you beat everyone else, they don't like that because it it stagnates things. I go back to, you know, what the UFC did to their light heavyweight division. They cut two or three top-ranked light heavyweights because they couldn't beat John Jones but they could reliably beat everybody else. I mean, and, again, the other factor here, how much were fans interested in them absent their potential entry into the title picture? Why did the UFC cut Ryan Bader? Was Ryan Bader not good enough to be in the UFC? Ryan Bader could. Well, Ryan Bader was very much a UFC caliber fighter if we're talking about skill. They cut Phil Davis. Same thing. And if you... So Covington now is in an even more precarious position 
where he's not going to get another title shot. Not for a long time. And probably not while Usman is still champion. So, if you're the UFC, and you've got the puppy mill running that is Dana White's contender series, do you keep paying Colby Covington, or do you cut him, use whatever you're paying him to pay three fresh signees, and see if any of them happens to be any good for a couple of fights? Now, you tell me what the business of the UFC is likely to do. So, if you're Colby Covington, what is your recourse? Your recourse is to then, your only recourse now is to still be someone that people will pay to watch. And nobody's going to pay to watch Colby Covington as he is as a human being. They're just not. Because we tried that already through his first, the first half of his UFC run and nobody cared. Go back, you may not want to do this because you don't like the guy, but... Go back, listen to, watch some of his earlier UFC fights, and listen to him. Listen to his post-fight interviews. Even his pre-fight stuff. Listen to what he's, he says the same thing every other fighter says. He is, he is complimentary of his opponent in places. He doesn't insult them. He's just a guy. A guy who's a pretty darn good fighter but whose style is not necessarily one that gets people excited. And he's just and he's just saying the same things everyone else says. That guy, right now, even as the second best welterweight in the world, doesn't have tremendous value to the UFC. He just doesn't. That's the UFC's business model right now. It sucks in some respects, but that's the way it is. So if Colby wants to keep his job... Or if you're in his pos- if you, listener to this show, were in his position, what would- I ask you again, what would you do? Would you settle for trying to do a face turn on an audience that has- that you have vociferously attacked for the last, what, five-ish years? Go back to 2017, so four? You, you want to try and- Again, you want to try and rely on the goodwill of your couple of fights with Usman, potentially building that up. I mean, at which point, the fan, the fans' goodwill, the UFC has done a remarkable job of cultivating a fan base that doesn't really care about the fighters at all. If the UFC cuts you, look, look at any time the list comes out of people that the UFC has cut. Look at the reactions from people. And most of them just don't care. People are in... The UFC has cultivated a fan base that is significantly more interested in the brand than the individual fighters. So, at at this point, if you as Covington are relying on the potential goodwill of the fan base to carry you through your next handful of fights, the UFC doesn't care. The UFC cares about what you can do for them, and if you're just another sort of happy-go-lucky fighter, but you're really good, but your style's not all that pleasing to Dana White, 
and you failed two times in your at title shots, they're going to let you go. That's just how they operate. So yeah, he's defaulting back to what he thinks is the only thing that can give him job security. Are you surprised at this? He's doing everything he can to not be subjected to the whims of the UFC brass. Which, as we've all learned, if you've paid any attention, are capricious and petty. There's... <laughs> of course he did. Of course he did. Because if he doesn't, he's probably out of a job sooner rather than later. There's... There's just not any real way around that. That's just reality. And it sucks sometimes, but it is reality. So, as for what's next for Usman, that kind of hinges on Edwards and Masvidal, which is happening near the end of the year. If Leon Edwards wins that fight, which I kind of favor him to do so, he should get a title shot. He should have had this title shot if we're talking purely about merit. But no one cares about Leon Edwards. And it sucks because he's a very good... F Look, you know what happens... Again, you know what happens to Colby Covington if he's not an antagonistic personality that people care about and react to and drives online traffic? He's Leon Edwards. People forget Leon Edwards exists. And it, it sucks because Leon Edwards is a very good fighter. He's one of the best welterweights in the world. But being good at your job in the fight game is not enough. It's a it's enough to a certain degree, but that degree has a very clear shelf life to it. If you can't the number of people who can get by purely on their talent as having a good relationship and some job security are only ever are either generational talents or exist and annoy the UFC and are then cut at the first sign of them slipping at all. And <sighs> I think that's just, again, that's just reality. So Edwards should get a title shot if he beats Jorge Masvidal. He's earned it. He's more than earned it. I've said that here. I've said that publicly because I think it's true. But the UFC doesn't care about Leon Edwards having earned it in a meritocratic sense. They care about who will generate the most revenue for them. And nobody cares about Leon Edwards. So, if Edwards beats Mosfidal, that's kind of... They... <laughs> the UFC tried. They tried to give Leon Edwards a spot where he can... <laughs> have a moment where they can then justify giving him a title shot because, I mean, again, he's more than earned it with his winning streak, but they want to try and get a little bit of hype around the fight, around his potential fight with Kamaru Usman. So they give him Nate Diaz, and <laughs> Edwards wins the fight. He, pit, he wins the first four rounds pretty convincingly, not terribly competitive, and then with one punch... Nate Diaz doesn't end the fight, but he takes all the wind out of the sails that we're potentially building up for Leon Edwards. Just one punch. He goes on wobbly legs. Diaz, you know, pushes in, does a little bit of effort to finish, but can't, but ultimately can't do it. 
And now he's got to fight Jorge Masvidal, which is the same thing. The UFC is trying to give Edwards some kind of visible, not just win on his record, but a real win in the public eye. Because, look, what was the narrative coming out of the Edwards and Diaz fight? It was all about Nate Diaz and how he, you know, landed the good punch. And was maybe... Diaz preserved his brand, and people were more interested in that aspect of what happened in that fight than anything Leon Edwards did in the first four rounds. They're trying to give him something with Masvidal, where if Leon Edwards can avenge a backstage altercation that he had with Masvidal, then, you know, maybe get a little bit of momentum behind the guy. But, this is is where things get interesting. If... What do we do if Jorge Masvidal beats Leon Edwards? As I said, I favor Leon Edwards. I do. But what do you do if Masvidal wins? And there's not a great answer. You might do... You've got a few guys who you could do. You've got Vicente Luque sitting at four. I think those two have already fought. I think it would have been a while ago. Let me double check that. Um, Usman's fought a lot of guys. Did he fight? Uh, let's see. No. Who was I thinking of? Uh, it doesn't matter. So you could maybe do Luke. But... It's just, it's a little, the UFC is really kind of banking on Leon Edwards beating Jorge Masvidal, because if not, they're going to have to do some creative stuff. I mean, obviously right now the guy with the most hype at middle, at welterweight, excuse me, is Hamzat Shemaev, who is now ranked number 10 after he ran over Lijing Leon like he did. I'm... He's got to win at least one more fight. That's just kind of the way the division is shaped up right now, the way the timing works out. Neil Magny has been saying he wants to fight Kamzat. I would be very interested in that fight. Some other people have mentioned maybe Kamzat, Shemaev, and Gilbert Burns. That would... uh, But Shemaev has to win one more, I think. But if he does, if he does like... And if he does it the same way he's been doing it, I think he's the guy they're going to try and get into the title picture very, very quickly. So, my immediate, again, the next title challenger for Usman, assuming Usman doesn't suffer some kind of injury that complicates the timing, you're probably looking at Leon Edwards. But if Edwards loses against Masvidal, and he might, again, I favor him, but he might lose that. Um, That could be rough. That could we could see a very awkward title defense for Kamar Usman where it's just somebody. Unless Shemaev does a real fast turnaround. If Shemaev fights before the end of the year, or in like February, uh, then maybe again, especially if he blows up a a top ranked guy, if he blows up someone like Neil Magny or this is ranked above him right now, Michael Chiesa. 
Or if he fights Vicente Luque, I don't think that fight will happen, but hypothetically. If Shamaya fights Vicente Luque at the end of January or the beginning of February and runs him over like a freight train, yeah, they're probably just going to do Usman and Shamayev. Just throwing it out there. Uh, as for what's next for Covington, I don't know. He's another guy who's fought a fair number of... He's fought a fair number of uh, welterweights already. Um, he said he wants to fight Jorge Masvidal. That's that's a fight they might be able to make some hay out of. Again, you got Masvidal and Edwards coming up, but I think I think uh, Covington and Masvidal would be fine either way for Jorge. Because if Masvidal beats Edwards, he's not getting another title shot. He's lost twice to the champion, and the last time was brutally knocked out. So you, that's probably going to be what's next for him one way or the other. So I would be okay with that fight. I think it's a fight that's got a little bit of heat on it. You could easily main event a, a, a big fight night with it uh, without too much trouble. So uh, the fight itself, again, it wasn't a great fight. I'm not, I'm not crapping on it. It wasn't great. But this fight, this whole card had some pretty darn good fights on it. So, I mean... I'm not going to talk about this fight next, but I'm just going to say it. The pay-per-view portion of this card peaked with the pay-per-view opener. To the shock of no one. That, uh, well, we'll get to that. Your co-main event. Rose Namajunas defeats Zhang Weili via split decision. There was a 48-47 for each woman and a 49-46 for Rose. Um, doing this live, I was 48-47 for Zhang. I gave Zhang the first three rounds and Rose rounds four and five. Here's the thing about that. Round two was very, very close in the scoring and how you would have to score that round. I don't object to 48-47 for Nami Yunus at all. The 49-46... I've got a bit of a problem with that. Now, here's the caveat. I need to rewatch round one. Because three is pretty clearly Zhang's. Two, I'll, two I will freely admit is a toss-up. Four and five were not were Rose's rounds. That's not terribly in debate. So I've got to rewatch the first round to see how egregious I think 49-46 is. Because what scoring live, you know, which I do because it's what you're supposed to do. Um, I it's what I do is a deeply imperfect way of judging a fight. And I've said that before and I'm happy to say it again whenever it's warranted. But typing up what I see Fixing spelling errors, worrying at some place at some places about my uh, grammatical structure, you know stuff like that. It's a bad way to score a fight because I'm more I'm worried about other things. My attention is divided. So with divided attention and the UFC commentary, it's entirely possible that round one was closer than I thought it was live. 
I will need to rewatch that one. But as it sits now, I thought Zhang taking rounds one and three wasn't terribly controversial. The fight itself was somewhat interesting. Zhang was staying all the way out, like way away. She was outside of Rosa's kicking distance for most of this. And would then just kind of bounce around and look to explode through distance when she wanted to attack. Which was an interesting choice, I think. She was pretty clearly hesitant about about exchanges with Nama Yunus for good reason, because Rose knocked her out in their last fight. Uh, Zhang landed some good leg kicks. I think commentary might have oversold them a touch, but they were still solid and they still landed. Uh, I think Zhang... Uh, one of the things I mentioned in the in my pre-fight analysis, I think that Zhang likes fighters who will collide with her at, in predictable timing patterns. And Rose Namajunas is not that fighter. She just doesn't do that. And that throws off a lot of bit, a lot of what Zhang was doing. Zhang did a lot of circling, a lot of backing up, um, and I think that ultimately cost her a lot when it came to the scoring of this fight. Anytime they got into kind of boxing range, I think uh, Nama Yunus was able to find some good punches. Uh, her jab was on occasion troubling. She didn't throw it a whole lot, but it was a problem. Uh, in the, I think it was like the fourth, in the fourth and the fifth round, man, Rose found a home for her right hand. And she was landing that thing over and over again. Then she used it to set up some takedowns. Um, the takedown game in this fight was interesting. Um, Zhang got Rose down a couple of times, and Nama Yunus was not, I think... I think the first time she got taken down, she was way too comfortable. This would have been the first round. She was way too comfortable um, playing in her guard. When it happened again later, she's... Uh, I mean, the, the, it was a bit in the first round, actually. It might have been the second. No, I think it was the first. Where, um, where Zhang gets a takedown and Rose tries to sweep her with a butterfly hook. Uh... Zhang scrambles with her, moves to that same... There's some really nice sequences here. There's one that where Zhang wound up in mount uh, right as the round ended. Again, I want to say that was the first round. Uh, when these two were scrambling, it was interesting. When they were static, um, it became a lot of who was on top. Uh, Zhang has the better ground and pound of the two in a vacuum. Rose's work when she was on top, especially when she was in full guard, was not terribly compelling. Um, she wasn't landing a lot of very good punches. She, Once she got her posture up, she was able to land a few good ones, but her passing game wasn't... and She didn't do a whole lot to pass in places. I don't know if she was just moving very, very slowly and methodically, or if that's just not an area of the game that she practices a whole lot, is... You know, dealing with uh, a slightly more aggressive way of passing full guard. But her, her ground and pound here was fairly anemic at times. Uh, other times it, it kind of came alive a little bit more, but her top, her top control game from a more neutral position like full guard um, left a bit to be desired here. Now, 
that might have been a matchup issue. That might have been an issue with Zhang's physical strength, but it, it was a problem. And to be fair, the same thing was true of Zhang. She got Rose down a few times, but wasn't wasn't able to do a whole lot with it other than control. So it largely became a game of who could get the takedown. And um, initially that was Zhang. Later it was Rose. Let me see. What else did I have? About? I didn't have a whole lot about this. I thought the distance work from both women was interesting. There was a lot of stalking from Rose. Um, Rose not as overpowered in the clinch as you might have thought, given how uh, Zhang is a fairly yoked up woman, and she w and she couldn't quite muscle Rose around the way. Again, if you just looked at a picture of each of them, you know which of these you know, who's the these two lock up? Who's going to have the physical advantage? You're going to default to Zhang for understandable reasons, and. It's not that Zhang didn't have any advantage any time they were locked up. It's that it wasn't... The disparity wasn't as big as you might have expected or thought it would be. So... Uh, again, a close fight. I think 3-2 to two for either woman is a perfectly acceptable scorecard. To be candid. Uh, and when you get one of those, you just have to accept that sometimes they don't fall your way. Uh, decent enough fight. As for Nama Yunus next, um, Dana. So, asked at the post-fight press conference about Carla Esparza potentially fighting Rose Nama Yunus for the title, he said, no, we have other options, and you can't just wait out a title shot, and I wanted to throw something. As though the main event of this card wasn't Colby Covington sitting on his win over Tyron Woodley and getting a title shot. Plus, Carla fought earlier this year. It's not like she's been out. When she went, she fought like... When did she fight last? Hang on. I, I want to say it was earlier this year. Like five, six months? Yeah, she... Carla beat Yan Nan in May. <laughs> you can't sit out and wait for a title shot. In May! Uh, the hypocrisy of the UFC knows no bounds. Just none. <laughs> Esparza and Rose should be next. Esparza has the winning streak. She should be the one to get the title shot. Now, if the UFC is like we know they are, who's it probably going to go to? It's probably going to go to Marina Rodriguez. I think Marina fights in a style that Dana likes more, so he'll do that. Um, you know, for as... While women's strawweight is a good division, I certainly don't mean to, to disparage it, like I will other divisions, for good reason. Um, they need to get some turnover going in that division. Just a little bit. You've got some people that are lingering, that in a healthier weight class, you know, maybe wouldn't be. We'll see how the we'll see what happens, you know, the next throughout the next little bit of time. There, there's a while. Uh, there's a while to let that kind of sort itself out, but 
So I I would think Rose and Carlos Barza would be. I mean, that's a rematch of the inaugural strawweight title fight. Um, you've got Yoana, who's not in the rankings right now, but uh, will be a factor in that division when she comes back. I assume. You're just not gonna. Here's the problem that Ioana's up against. She's lost twice to the current champion. Sound familiar? She's also very clearly one of the best strawweights in the world. I thought she beat Zhang Wei Li. I scored that fight for Ioana. I have scored that fight for Ioana every time I've watched it. Whatever that's worth. Uh, but she's got two losses to the current champion. One of them a brutal knockout. And... Other than that, all that she has going for... What does she have going for? UFC's put her in prominent positions, so it's not, so she's not a non-entity when it comes to drawing, but... Would you be shocked if... They couldn't come to an agreement, and the UFC released her? I mean that. I mean that sincerely. Would that shock you? Because it shouldn't. You can say it's a mistake, and you can say you disagree with it, but... If you're, if you're in that position, man, that's a rough one because the UFC will cut you and will take whatever they were paying you to pay three, at least three, Jamokes coming off the Contender Series because they got that puppy mill up and a running. All right, moving on. Marlon Vera defeats Frankie Edgar in our next fight via KO. It's a front kick to the face. 350 of the third round. I thought Frankie Edgar won the first round. You know, Frankie's movement is still very good. He found some good punches, got a takedown, had some good top control and ground and pound. The second round, things started falling apart for him a little bit. He got a takedown but couldn't maintain it as for nearly as long this time. He was getting stabbed in the guts repeatedly with a front kick. Frankie's combination work is also a little predictable. And I think that's becoming a real problem for him as he enters this phase of his career. Um, I think it's becoming a real problem for him. Then when we get into the third, Vera is pushing the action. He might have been down two rounds. I didn't have him down two rounds, but he might have been. He stalks Frankie. Frankie's legs don't quite seem to be all the way there. Frankie's labor-intensive footwork is... That's hard to maintain as you get to his age, man. Frankie Edgar's 40. And that, that's not an easy 40. Look at some of the wars that man has been in. Both of his title fights with Gray Maynard are the stuff of legend. Look at his first fight with Jose Aldo. That was a war. He got the crap beat out of him. Even the rematch with Aldo was... Uh, was it wasn't as brutal, but he took a non-trivial beating. Uh, you know, Brian Ortega TKO'd him. You know, Max put a Max didn't put a beating on him the way that Max has done other people, but he took a pretty decent beating. Chan Sung Jung stopped him. I thought he lost the Pedro Munoz fight, and that was five rounds. Like that guy's been through the ringer. And now that you're 40, he sh <laughs> there were a lot of rumors around that he was going to retire after this fight. I tend to think if he had won, he might have said, he might have used the post-fight interview to go, 
I won in Madison Square Garden. I'm a former champion. I'm 40 years old. Thank you for this dream come true. And, but I'm done. With the loss? Hmm. That, he kind of downplayed the notion of retirement all fight week after these things started kind of cropping up. Like, maybe he's going to be done. But, I don't, he might be looking for one more win to go out on. He might be one of those guys who needs to be shown the door. I mean, you're 40, fighting at bantamweight. And I don't think he's won, a, again, technically, he won the Pedro Munoz fight. I scored it against him. The last fight he won that everyone agrees on was three years ago, almost four, when he beat Cub Swanson. In a three-round fight. I mean... That's a, lo that's a long time to be without a win. Again, I give you the Munoz fight, technically, yes. But when was the last time everyone agreed he won a fight? Yeah? And now he's been finished twice he's been finished three times his last three losses have all been finishes two of those in the first round i don't know if they maybe try to give him a a genuine farewell fight but he's gonna be done sooner rather than later he should be done within the next two fights whether that's because he sees the writing on the wall and walks away, or because the UFC shows him the door. I think those are the options here. Uh, good win for Vera. Biggest win of his career in some respects. Marlon Vera is a very real problem at bantamweight. His only loss at bantamweight in a number of years is to Jose Aldo. That guy's a problem. I mean that as a compliment. That guy's a problem. He's beatable, but he's... If you look at his style, it does present openings, but... He has grown into a very capable contender in a very, very competitive division. Uh, featherweight up next, Shane Burgos defeats Billy Quarantillo via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. On any other fight night, neither pay-per-view card, this would have been your fight of the night. These two kept a crazy pace. I think they set the record for a feather for total strikes thrown in a three-round featherweight fight. Um, they did they did crazy work. Burgos they both took turns to go uh, going forward. The leg kicks from Burgos became a real problem for Quarantillo the longer this fight went. Quarantillo not being able to get uh, to get this to the mat. Quarantillo is a very good fighter, and this pace was insane. They both landed on each other. They both hurt each other. They were both throwing punches, elbows, leg kicks, knees to the body, tying up, dirty boxing to the body and head. It was... The fact that this fight had to follow Gaethje and Chandler was a crime 
against these two men because this was a great fight that was overshadowed by what came before it. Uh, it's a shame these two guys didn't get... They were never going to win the fight of the night bonus. Not after that opener, which we'll get to next. But you almost should have. You should have done two fight. You, there should have been two fights of the night. Because this was a really, really good fight. Uh, if you didn't see it, look it up. Uh, I don't know what's next for Burgos. I think this is kind of his ceiling. Uh, where he is ranked at the moment. He can give he can give tough fights to the guys ranked above him. He and Barboza, man. Uh, that was a brutal fight. They both had it kind of taken out of them. Uh, I think Quarantillo's upside is pretty clear at this point. Um, he's got a motor. He's got a good chin. He's got to tighten up a few things technically. And I think the problem is his relentless aggression will let people, lets people who are slick be able to kind of counter him and move around him. Uh, which is what Tucker did. Gavin Tucker was able to move and counter and take him down on occasion. If he, I think Quarantillo's game also is a little bit, a little bit like Frankie Edgar's in the sense that he needs to be able to implement both halves of you know, both the striking and the grappling together. If you can completely shut down one of those and he's forced to rely on the other, it's not as potent. Now, not again, not obviously to that same degree, but I think there's a little bit of a similarity there. Uh, that said, you know, Quarantillo's UFC record is good. I think there's a lot of upside to him. So, good fight from both men. Your pay-per-view opener. Good lord. Justin Gaethje defeats Michael Chandler via unanimous decision. 229-28, 130-27. Live, I was 30-27. The first round could have gone either way. I said these two... Uh, my joke... As soon as they announced this, was somebody's going to die. And these two went up there and tried to kill each other for 15 minutes. <laughs> this was insane. What these two men did to each other defies conventional description in some respects. Opening bit, the op especially like the opening part of the first round, Michael Chandler had a lot of success. He was landing some good leg kicks. Um, Gaethje landed a couple of his own. I think Gaethje was the harder kicker. But he also wasn't kind of buying into um, the range that Gaethje wanted to fight at. He kept a little bit longer stance and was looking to kind of move quickly whenever he wanted to punch. You know, be out of even kicking range at the very end of it so he can evade leg kicks. And then very quickly, almost like a fencer. You know, get in a couple of steps, land a few punches, and get back out. And that worked very well for him. He got tagged a few times on the counter, but that was kind of working for him. He wobbled Gagey, landed a couple of nice rights. Gagey just was able to get through it and started landing his own shots. He landed some good counters. Uh, Gagey kind of clobbered him with a left hook at one point. And the leg kick started adding up. The longer this fight went, the more those became a problem. By the time we got into the second round, Gaethje was land landed a couple of leg kicks and Chandler went southpaw to protect his left leg. Unfortunately for Michael Chandler, his defense in southpaw was not good. Gaethje immediately crushed him with a right hand. 
And Chandler then, all right, I I would rather be kicked in the leg than punched in the face. And even then, he, um, second round was also where Gaethje... It's one of the things I wanted to say about this. So let me go through the fight again, and then I'll get into this. Um, Gaethje dropped Chandler with an uppercut in the second round. Uh, got on got on top, and... Uh, I mean, Chandler, I don't know how he survived. He got fl- he got dropped with that. Came up on a single leg to try and stall out, and he did successfully stall out. Um, third round, a bit more... The third round was bonkers, for, just from Chandler's perspective. He takes so many leg kicks, goes southpaw, gets punched again repeatedly, and at that point, his legs toast. He doesn't have much defense. He doesn't really have a plan B here. He can't rely. There was a point. I think it was the second round. He shoots a double leg on Gagey, gets him up on his shoulders to slam him. And Gagey's response, the maniac, is to try and grand B from his opponent's shoulders. He basically front flips, breaks Chandler's grip while doing so, and comes up in a leg ride after they hit the mat. It was it was absolutely insane. Uh, yeah, third round, Chandler just decides at one point, all right, if I'm going out, I'm going out on my shield. His legs are shot. He's been beaten up. He was landing good body shots on Gagey, and I think those might have start were starting to add up just a little bit. Um, he was dipping and throwing the right to the body, trying to set it up to the head. But anytime they tied up, he would just swing hammers into Gagey's ribs. Just, I mean, just crushing them. Uh, Gagey's fortitude is amazing. <laughs> is absolutely amazing. But he, Chandler just, he ate a bunch of punches and just said, all right, screw it, I'm coming forward. And started coming forward throwing punches. And Gagey would cover up and dip and throw a leg kick and throw an uppercut and he'd land. And Chandler just kept coming and kept coming. And Gagey, there's one point when Gagey, like Chandler's pressed him almost to the fence and Gagey swats him with a left hook. That's less a crisp punch and more a hit you hard, and then shove you away. Like, what the hell are you doing? Um, This was an amazing, amazing fight. This was your fight of the night. This might be your fight of the year. This fight made me mad at the month of October, and I'll tell you why. I sat through Aspen Ladd versus Norma Dumont. I sat through... Mackenzie Dern and Marina Rodriguez. I sat through... Uh, what was the other kind of crappy one from October? Hang on. Uh, I'll even say this. I sat through Tiago Santos and Johnny Walker for five rounds of each of them. And you people only gave Justin Gagey and Michael Chandler three rounds. How dare you? And and to all the fans out there, by the way, just throwing this one out there, too. The number of people who have been brainwashed by the UFC, who, when confronted with the fact that the month of October really sucks so we could have a couple of good 
couple of very stacked events. And let's be clear, UFC 267 followed by UFC 268. If we're talking quality of fights, that is the best two-event stretch the UFC has had in years. I am not ignorant to that reality. Please bear with me on that. But they sacrificed everything else in October for that. You look at both of those events, and you could have... I'm not even necessarily saying take the title fights away. You could have taken other fights from those cards to main event every other event in October and made everything better. And instead, you did what you did. So I only got three rounds of these two. I only got... There could have been two more rounds of this fight. Think about that for just a second. They bumped this thing back to October 16th. It's this instead of uh, Norma Dumont and Aspen Ladd. And we get that for three rounds, and we get to go into the fourth. Tell me that's not the... that This fight for five rounds. Well, things might have been a little bit different if they're trying to pace themselves over five instead of three. Like, I get that there's... I get that there's a degree of difference that might have existed. But tell me that these two over five rounds wouldn't have been the best fight. Not just of the year. Like, that's one of the best fights ever. That's how, like, that's what this was. Uh, it was a brilliant fight. If you have, I'm going to be a little bit critical here, so bear with me because I, you have to be fair and critical of the things you love. Justin Gaethje's plan was a little bit repetitive. Um, uh, I say that only in the sense that a lot of his setups were the same. I don't know if there was something that they had seen in Chandler's game that he didn't quite do this time, so it didn't quite, so what he was doing didn't quite come alive. Like there's an entry Chandler likes, so Gaethje dipping is, so Gaethje dipping down to his own right to either to kind of line up the uppercut, didn't quite live up to what it could have been if Gage if Chandler again has a little bit different entry, or if Chandler reads it and does something like there's a lot of there's some. There's some texture to this that I freely admit I'm not I'm not aware of everything going on here, but it, it was a little bit samey in terms of his attacks. Chandler, here's one of the things about Michael Chandler, and I think this is just true of him. It's certainly true of him now. It has probably been truer of him throughout his career than a lot of people would like to admit. The man has power, no denying it. But Chandler's strategy seems to be, this has been true for a little bit now, not just his time in the UFC. If he can't knock you out in the first round, he tries to just wrestle you to death for, the, uh, for as long as he can after that. And I'm not criticizing that as a strategy. It's not the worst if we're talking broad game plans. Here's the problem. If any time he has to face someone who is a durable, constant threat throughout the duration of a fight, if you can't put them away and then your takedowns aren't really working or you wind up in a, in a tough guard, you don't really have something else to go to here. He was, look, Michael Chandler was an eyelash away from being UFC lightweight champion when he fought Charles Oliveira. 
Right? He came real close to stopping that guy in the first round. Real close. But Oliveira, for the first time in his career, arguably, persevered. And we got into the second round, and Chandler was doing a little bit too much of the same, and a durable guy who made a slight read was able to counter him and finish him. Chandler needs a slight shift if he's going to deal with these real long-term threats that some of the guys pose, because plan A is knock him out in the first round. And that'll work sometimes. When you hit like Michael Chandler does, when you're as explosive an athlete as Michael Chandler is, you will find success doing that. Plan B, if plan A doesn't work, is time to wrestle. But he doesn't have a plan C. Evidence here. First round, barn burner, hurts Gagey, gets hurt, wildness. Second round, tries to start introducing the takedown. Can't get Justin Gagey down. Certainly can't control him on the instances when they hit the mat. What does he do next? What's, what, you know, what's next? You fired both of your bullets. So, you can... He doesn't have a next. He doesn't have something else. It's just back to let's swing some hammers, and maybe it's just not built for long-term success. I will say this though. Someone else on Twitter noted this, and I think it's true. Michael Chandler has the most exciting UFC career start of one and two since Justin Gagey. <laughs> Wins an exciting fight. Loses a competitive back-and-forth fight. Via, uh, loses a competitive fight in his second fight. Then loses pretty badly in the third. In Gagey's case, that was knock out Michael Johnson, have a war with Eddie Alvarez, but lose. But you know, have a good... Make a very good account of yourself. Fight Dustin Poirier and lose. And I think the Poirier loss was a little bit... Gagey got real close to was very much in that Poirier fight. I think I had him up before he got before he got stopped, and I think that kind of clued him into what he needed to change. Now Chandler at this point is not where Gagey was physically or age-wise at that point. I don't know what kind of slight what kind of tweaks Chandler might be able to do, but Michael Chandler is must-see TV. Uh, there's no two ways around that. Um, Gagey, after this fight, said he wanted a title shot. It's a tough call between him and Islam Makashev. Now, some of this will come down to what happens between Poirier and Oliveira. That, that's a big, big uh, thing that needs to be resolved. If... I say that for the following reason. If Dustin Poirier wins, which is a big if, I tend to like his chances, though, for whatever that's worth. If he wins, and if there's no weirdness, if there's no weirdness that might propel an immediate rematch, I'm just going to throw this out there, and you all can make of it what you will, Because, but we know the UFC does a bit of this. What are you more interested in 
for Dustin Poirier's first title defense. A potentially a rehash of Poirier versus Khabib or a straight-up rematch between Justin Gaethje and Dustin Poirier, with Gaethje being his slightly his tweaked, with Gaethje's game having been tweaked since the Poirier loss. Which of those two fights do you think appeals to the average fight fan more? Now, I'm a believer in Islam Makhachev. I tend to think he will be champion, believe it or not. But I think if... And look, here's here's the flip side of this. I think if Charles Oliveira wins, I think they might at that point do Makhachev. I... Instead of Gaethje. I, I, I'm not sure about that, but that's kind of the... That's kind of my inkling. If Poirier wins, I think they'll do Poirier Gaethje 2 this time for the belt. Because, and look, in no small part, because, watch their first fight. Tell me, then, tell me you don't want to see the slightly reformed Justin Gagey take on Dustin Poirier for the title. You can't tell me you don't want to see that. You can't. So... There's still a little bit to be determined, and look, somebody's going to get their heart broken. Whether it's Islam or uh, Gaethje remains to be seen. So, it's not, and again, it's not like there's not a case for Makashev. He just ran over Dan Hooker. But if we get the chance to run back Gaethje and Poirier for the belt, I... I tend to think that's where the chips might fall a little bit more. Just just my hung just a hunch. I might be very very wrong. And we might get uh we might get something else entirely. Who knows? The sport's crazy, but that's my hunch. So, that was your main card. Not a loser among those fights. Fight of the year candidate between Gagey and Chandler. Great fight between Burgos and Quarantillo. Vera gets a front kick knockout. Uh, Nama Yunus and Zhang have a pretty good five-round fight. Usman and Covington have a decent fight. Wasn't a barn burner, but not a bad fight. Really good pay-per-view. As for the prelims, um, Alex Pareja defeated Andreas Michalides via TKO, flying knee and punches 18 seconds into the second round. Alex Pereira is here because he knocked out Israel Adesanya in kickboxing. He beat him twice. One was a split decision that I don't agree with, and I've seen the fight. I looked it up. I mean, the rematch, Izzy was winning the rematch, and then, just, look, he, he got knocked out. There's no ambiguity there. Um, I don't know how high Pereira's ceiling might be, but he does not have time to screw around. And I think anyone... Look, Michalides had some decent success. Or Michalides. It was Michalides. I forget. My apologies if I'm mispronouncing that gentleman's name. No, Michalides, I think. Something weird. I apologize again. I'm screwing it up. I know I am. He had some decent success clinching Pereja and getting him down. Now, to Pereja's credit, 
showed a decent aptitude at wall walking. So, want to give him credit. He's aware of this as a thing he has to deal with. But any decent anybody who's a better wrestler than uh, Michalides, and there's a lot of them, I think he's going to have some real problems. He's obviously got power. He's obviously a very good kickboxer. He was a two-weight world champion in glory. But I I think he's going to have a hard time at, at middleweight. Unless the UFC match makes him very favorably, which they might. Let's not pretend that preferential treatment doesn't exist in the UFC. It does. Uh, I, I don't know what his ceiling is going to be, but it was a good knockout. It's a real good knockout. Speaking of good knockouts, at lightweight, Bobby Green beat the crap out of Ali, Ali Quinta, TKOing him 225 of the first. As my dog stares at me, desperate for food, but not knowing that our clocks got set back an hour. You're going to have to wait. I'm sorry, but you must wait. Uh, Bobby Green looked good here, man. He was smooth. Slipping and countering, doing a little bit of stance switching. Really nice finish. Uh, really, really good performance from Bobby Green here. He looked good. Uh, at middleweight, Chris Curtis defeated Phil Haas via knockout punches. 427 of the first. Excuse me, of the first. Haas looked pretty good. Uh, he was landing really good punches. Had some decent combination work going. Curtis was struggling to find the target, and then Haas, they were opposite stances. Curtis was southpaw. Haas had kind of reached for the legs a time or two, just either to fake or just maybe to close distance or just to, again, just as something to do. And it had prompted some reactions out of Curtis that he was able to capitalize on. Well, I don't know if Haas was trying to do that again or if he just got sloppy Entered on a straight line and dropped his right, his rear hand as he threw a left hook to the body, but he did, and it means that it meant that Chris Curtis's left hand counter crushed him. Um, and, and Hawes immediately just hit, wobbles, falls like they were done. They were very, very done. Uh, it was. I can't say it was a great performance from Curtis, but he kept his head, uh, especially as he was getting kind of chewed up. And keeping your head even in the face of that kind of adversity is something that deserves to be acknowledged. And he found a good counter shot. You can slip only once. You slip up one time, and combat sports in general are brutally unforgiving. So, a good finish from Curtis, even if the performance itself was a little bit... He was a little bit overmatched in a lot of ways by Phil Hawes. Middleweight. Got to talk about this one a little bit more than some of the others. Um, Nasruddin Imavov defeats Edmund Shabazian via TKO. Elbows from the Mounted Crucifix. 4.42 of the first. Um, let me start with this. This was a good performance out of Imavov. He dealt with the striking well, had good pressure. Uh... Got a takedown or two, I think, in the first round. Um, or tried. Shabazian had clearly worked on his takedown defense. Um, apparently, he he had spent some time at the uh, at AKA and really worked on his wrestling after that hole had been exploited in his last couple of fights. So, 
kudos for acknowledging that particular deficiency and trying to work on it. He was much better about staying upright this time. It's still He still got taken down. That still ultimately led to the finish when it came about, but I do want to give him credit for, for realizing the problem there. Um, here's the real problem. And I'm going to talk about this again a little bit later when I talk about uh, Melsic Bogdasarian. I can tell you how this story is going to go for, Mel for Melsic Bogdasarian, because I, I can tell you how it's going to go for Edmund Shabazian, because I know what happens to fighters who spend a lot of time at the Glendale Fight Club under Coach Edmund Tarverdian. He attracts some people who have a lot of natural fighting ability, which Shabazian has. He has good power. He has a he has pretty good instincts about what to do on the feet. There is a lot of potential within Edmund Shabazian. I think that's very very clear. Here's the problem. Anytime one of these fighters from the Glendale Fight Club gets figured out, that problem stays solved. Derek Brunson wrestled him to death. And look what happened to him after that. Jack Hermanson pushed him back, took him off the front, took him off the offense, pushed him back, extended him long, and wrestled him to death. Imovov put him on the back foot striking-wise. Found some decent success there. Clinched him a lot. Made him work. Wore him down. Got him down. Took more effort this time. Shabazian deserves credit for making it more difficult. But gets taken down. Gets put in the mounted crucifix. And gets elbowed into the ground. This is going to happen to him again. And again. And again. Because Edmund Tarverdian cannot change and tweak you as a fighter. If you've got this kind of problem, he can't fix it. This, happen this has happened to every one of his previous pupils. Any of them that made it to the UFC. You can follow the same trajectory. Their natural ability carries them pretty carries them far pretty darn far in some cases ronda rousey became a champion and had multiple title defenses but what happened the first time somebody figured her out one she kind of cracked mentally under the pressure came back later got smoked again and was never and went off to wrestle which she has now stopped to raise a family and farm and god bless her i'm not going to say one bad thing about someone choosing to start a family not a darn thing. But what happened to Travis Brown when Travis Brown moved to Glendale Fight Club? He got figured out real quick. Real quick. And that problem stayed solved. What's happened to Edmund Shabazian? He debuted. His natural ability, which again is not trivial carried him to some good wins. He knocked out Brad Tavares with a head kick. Not too many people do that. He did. You don't do that by accident. 
But what happened, once he got figured out, that problem, as of this recording, is still very solved. I think... And, <clears throat> pardon me. Shabazian has taken some damage in these fights, too. Derek Brunson tore him up. And Imovov cut him up pretty good, too. He can't keep taking these kinds of beatings. Uh, it's... <laughs> It's just really not healthy. <laughs> so, I mean, Hermanson put a... At some at certain points, Hermanson put a, did a number on him on the ground, too. He's got to fix this. He has got to fix this problem. Or this is going to happen one more time and the UFC is going to cut ties. And the only way this is going to get solved... And I mean this, and I mean this sincerely. Whether or not he does this or not... Remains to be seen. There's, I should say, there's two ways this gets, there's two ways this gets solved. One, he takes a drastic step back in competition. And the UFC just feeds him a couple of tune-up fights. Which, I'm not saying they, I'm not saying that's impossible, but that is highly unlikely. The other option is he changes camps. Because, and, and that's still going to take some time to bear fruit. Changing camps is not like flipping a light switch. You've got to get to know your new coaches. They've got to figure out what they're working with in terms of who you are. They've got to rebuild certain habits. They've got to figure out what they can change and what they cannot change. Like, that's still a process. But we know where this story goes if he stays if he stays with the Glendale Fight Club. We know where this goes. There's no ambiguity here. What he chooses to do with this knowledge, I don't know. But he should be able to look at history. And if you do not learn from history, you will repeat it. This is essentially a truism of the human condition. Good win for Imavov. Imavov fights out of um, he fights out of the same camp that Cyril Gon does uh, under Fernand Lopez, and uh, he might be another one. I'm, again, I I can't say contender even necessarily, but you pay attention to that guy. He's good. Side note about Cyril Gon, who was I bring this up because he was cornering Imavov, and I I saw him. Cyril Gon. Cyril Gaon, when he's not in fight camp, is a massive man. Like, he's a... I mean, look. On fight night, he's 6'4", 240, right? Like, he's he's not a small person by any reasonable standard. I mean, look, if you throw him next to a bunch of NBA players, okay, he's he's tiny. Nicknamed tiny, not... Like, okay, NBA... There's some NBA players that are enormous human beings. But... I guarantee you the following after looking at after seeing Cyril gone here. Part of what he does in camp is lose weight. Now, I don't mean cut weight in the sense that he has to get under 265. I don't think that's true. But I would guarantee that part of the way his fight camp is structured is him losing at least 10 to 15 pounds. 
Like, that guy, very clearly, his performance weight is not necessarily what he walks around at. Which is, and to be clear, that doesn't mean that's anything drastic that's happening. It doesn't mean he's out of the gym now and is ballooned up. We'll get to, we'll get to Walrus Boy in a minute or two. But he clearly, I think, loses weight during fight camp in order to maximize what he does in the cage. And he's a big guy. That just really struck me this time for some reason. Like, I think if you put him as he is now, like next to Francis Ngannou, they probably weigh about the same. And he just, part of what he does when he goes into camp is slims down to maximize his speed and uh, refi- and help his cardio out. Uh, I'm really excited for Serial Gone and... Uh, Francis Ngannou, I, I don't know why I am. I I shouldn't say that. I kind of know why I am, but I'm so used to being, uh, you know, ambivalent at best towards heavyweight fights that being a little bit excited for one is a new feeling. Right, as for the earlier prelims, Ian Gary defeated Jordan Williams via knockout punches, 459 of the first. He was getting lit up. Gary was getting lit up a little bit by Jordan Williams. Um, he struggled. He didn't move his head much. Uh, he was getting hit. Then he, um, Gary was orthodox. Williams was southpaw. And Williams just overextended on a left. Gary just did a classic pull counter too. Slipped back and a little bit to his own right. Avoids the punch and then has a very clear open punching lane to the left from his right hand to the head of Williams and tags him and drops him and we're done. Um, there's some potential in Gary, but boy, does he have a lot of work still. Our our leopard seal affair of the evening, Chris Barnett defeated John Vellante via TKO. A wheel kick and punches of all things, 223 of the second. Now, this was John Vellante's last fight. He's retiring. I am grateful because I don't have to watch him fight. And he came in at 260 pounds. He looked like Rampage when Rampage fought Fedor. Like, grossly out of shape. Um, This fight up until the finish sucked. Just not an interesting fight. They're not doing much. Terrible fight. Then Chris Barnett faints a left roundhouse kick and steps through. He's, He's southpaw for this. He feints the kick, steps through, and throws a wheel kick that wraps around and cracks John Vellante upside the head with his heel. Drops him and <laughs> finishes the fight. Like, it's crazy, and I I kind of hate that someone with Chris Barnett's physique has a better spinning hook kick than I do. Because I am not an Adonis by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I'm taller than Barnett. And I weigh 40-ish pounds less, give or take. But, I mean, he landed that sucker. (laughs) So, good finish. Terrible fight. Good finish. Um, Our other Glendale Fight Club member we have to talk about, Melsic Bogdasarian defeated Bruno Souza. The unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, Souza took this fight on short notice. He missed weight because of that. Um, 
stop me if you've heard this before, but Melsic Bogdasarian looks pretty good, gets a win on the Contender Series. He's an exciting fighter. He debuts in the UFC against a slightly overmatched opponent. Goes into the third round, but does finish him. Has a second fight in the UFC where he struggles a bit more, but still ultimately gets the win. You want to know what's going to happen to him next? He's either go Two things. I hate to say two things he's either going to win or lose, but it's going to be in the following ways. He's either going to... Because he's fighting at featherweight. And the margin for error at featherweight is not what it is at middleweight. And he's going to either win, but expose a further hole. At the moment, cardio seems to be an issue for him. He's not very happy with a high-paced fight. He's got power, but he's not very technical. He tends to like to brawl. His wrestling's okay, but Souza wasn't much of a takedown threat. So he's either going to win but get taken down a lot and have to work for it and be gassed at the end, or someone's going to figure this out already. He's going to lose, and then the next fight, same as the then, you know, second verse, same as the first. Because once a, prob once a problem that is presented by a member of the Glendale Fight Club gets solved, it stays solved. And kicking off the main card, Ode Osborne defeated CJ Vergara via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the boards. Um, Vergara missed weight. Again, he took this fight on short notice, so I cut him a little bit of slack. Um, Osborne was just the superior technician for the first couple of rounds. Then, third round, Osborne gasses a little bit, and Vergara decides, screw it. He goes on nothing but forward pressure and offense, wins the round, um... Has some good, uh, has some, uh, has a good round. So, uh, yeah. That was UFC 268. I'm going to say this again. I don't think there was a bad fight on this card. Minor exception for Barnett and Volante that is offset by the absurdity of the finish. Everything else on this fight was at least watchable to good, was at least good. So... Darn good fight night. Um, long. This thing was over seven. This was almost an eight-hour card when it was all said and done. Um, which shouldn't be too surprising given the number of fights there were. There were how many here? Hang on. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. There were 14 fights, two of them title fights. Both title fights went the distance. I feel like when they laid this out, they were kind of relying on it on a couple of these fights not going the distance. But... Look, if we t even if we go into the non-title fights on the main card, Gaethje and Chandler went the distance. Burgos and Quarantillo went the distance. Vera and Edgar went into the third round, went over halfway through the third. To say nothing of the two of both main events going the full 25 minutes for the title fights. This was a long event. I think it's to the credit of the of this card and the quality of the fights that it didn't feel longer. Because another setup for this, another, like, I've done some events with the same number of fights that feel like the worst. That are just, like, it's wading through, it's wading through muck up to your waist. 
this wasn't that. So kudos to everyone involved for turning an eight-hour card into something that didn't feel eight hours. Uh, and I give a lot of thanks to every one of you who read my coverage live, who have read the report after the fact. I sincerely thank you all. I do this every week because every week the UFC runs something, I'm doing something. So if you would please continue your support, if you think uh, my work is worthy of it, I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you kindly. Uh, both of the, uh, the full report right now is available in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. Please do check it out. Uh, very briefly, before we move on to the preview last night as well, there was a Canelo fight. You can see Dana White watching it, cage side. Uh, it took place mostly during the, like, a little bit during Vera and Edgar, and then during a lot of Nami Yunus and Zhang was kind of the way that lined up. And I just want to give credit to Canelo Alvarez, who I have made jokes about in the past, but he fought Caleb Plant to fully unify the 168-pound division, which is super middleweight in boxing. His light heavyweight in boxing, I believe, is 175. So, yeah, this would have been super middleweight. Uh, they fought to unify all four belts, and Canelo scores an 11th round stoppage. I thought Plant acquitted himself fairly well, believe it or not. Um, he was just outgunned the whole way. And that became a problem down the stretch until and you know, eventually Canelo gets the late stoppage. Um, I know Kamaru Usman has said that after this he wants to bo uh, after his fight here he wanted to box Canelo. I appreciate that he's look that Kamaru Usman is looking for a payday. I really do. And given that MMA fighters are terribly compensated relative to the revenue the UFC generates and earns. I don't, again, I don't begrudge him that one iota. That would go so, so badly for Kamaru Usman. And look, I'm sure he would take the, the brain trauma for the payday that he, that, that potentially represents. But Canelo doesn't seem interested in the circus that that would be. And frankly... I don't think Usman represents a big enough payday for him to warrant the to to warrant that. Um, what's next for Canelo? He can either try to defend his titles, which he might do. Um, he, again, he very well might. I think he's looking at 175, and I think I think I don't know, but I think. Canelo Alvarez and Archer Baterbiev is something that's on the horizon. And should that fight happen, that will be nuts. That will be absolutely nuts. That might be the point when the size difference becomes a bit too much for Canelo. Canelo won a light heavyweight title fight. Uh, he beat old man Sergey Kovalev. Um, not a bad fight necessarily when those two fought, but Baterbiev and Canelo, I think is, I might, I might favor Baterbiev there. That's a heck of a fight if that gets made. So minor thoughts on the world of, from the world of boxing there, because Canelo's a big deal and I don't mind talking about Canelo on occasion when I think it's warranted. So, all right, let's move on. A long time talking about UFC 268, but you get a deep card, you get deep discussion, I suppose. 
to the extent that this is deep. UFC on ESPN plus 55. Headlined. This will not take as long as the rest of this podcast, I promise. Headlined by Max Holloway and Yair Rodriguez. The UFC has been desperate for Yair Rodriguez to step into title contention for some time. He's only got one loss in the UFC. That being a bad beating he took against Frankie Edgar. He was losing the fight against the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung before a last-second knockout. Beautiful knockout. He hasn't fought since October of 2019. I believe this is related to a failed drug test. Um, yeah, he was he was suspended for a drug test at one point. Um, he was supposed to fight Max Holloway earlier this year. There was a minor injury. Uh, I think it was to Max. Seems to be okay now. Look, I've said this before. I'll say it again. I need a con- I need a compelling reason if I'm going to pick against Max Holloway. And Yair Rodriguez, he kicks hard. I give him that. He is game. That man will fight. He absolutely will fight for the full duration. Max Holloway is not going to out-wrestle him like Frankie Edgar did. That's not Max Holloway's game. But Yair Rodriguez has a gas tank problem. He will, he will gut through it. But... It's a problem, and it's been a problem for a while. Of all the of all the areas to have a weakness, like this. It, look, if you were to fight Max Holloway, if there's anything that you absolutely cannot have, it is a weakness in cardio. You can have deficient striking. You'll still lose. But maybe if you're an overwhelming wrestler, and maybe, or maybe if you're just, you know, really tough, then okay, you can get through it. Maybe if you're a really good striker, you can hang with him for a while. Jose Aldo hung with him. But you cannot fade against Max Holloway. Because Max Holloway not only doesn't fade, Max Holloway increases the pace as the fight goes on. It's insane. There's not many people who do what he does. I think Piotr Jan kind of does it. But there's not many people who start out a little bit slower and build and build and build and build. And arguably the fifth round is their strongest. There's not many of those guys. They're just a, they're, they exist, there's just not a lot of them. Most people start out high and then drop. Some people have a good middle pace that they can maintain forever. Uh, some people, some people do either the U or the hill, where they, if you do the U, you start high, drop off, and then rebound, and end a little bit stronger. The hill is kind of the opposite. You start slow, build to a middle point, and then drop off again. Max Holloway is like a rocket. And Peter Yon's kind of the same way. Again, you can find a few of these guys. They start slower. Some of this is by design for their style. And to say Max Holloway starts slower is only relative to what he does in later rounds. Not to say that he starts slow relative to how you or I would start in a a five-minute round. (laughs) Like, no. Max Holloway's cautious output is better than my best output, I have no doubt. 
but he just gets better. <laughs> like, he just gets better. And if you fade at all against Max Holloway, he runs you over. I've said, like, fighting Max Holloway is like fighting water. What you do needs to be a, a... Your defense and your game plan has to be a bathtub. Otherwise, it finds a hole. I don't know if you guys know this, but technically speaking, water dissolves more substances than sulfuric acid does. No, I'm not going to do a Bruce Lee quote here. <laughs> but... Water will just find any little opening and start flowing through it and start flowing through it and start flowing through it. And then it's at first it's a drip and it's a stream and it's a torrent. Then it's Niagara Falls. That's Max Holloway. And if you are not up to that task, if what you do is not airtight, you will drown. And <laughs> I... I do not have a reason to pick against Max Holloway here. I'm not going to be terribly shocked if Rodriguez finds success, especially early. He's wild enough, and what Max does is a little bit read-dependent enough that maybe he can be surprised early. He's been surprised early in the past. But if this gets out of the first round, I think especially if this gets out of the second this is over. Max Holloway is going to win. He's just... He just doesn't stop. Um, unless it's all finally catching up to Max. And Holloway's not an old man. He's younger than I am. He's 29. He's 29. 29 years old. Max Holloway. Maybe the best featherweight in the world. Maybe the best featherweight of all time. Arguable. But maybe. What'd you do with your life? <laughs> uh, but, again, the slight counterpoint to that is years and miles. You know, Max debuted in 2010. He's been fighting for 11 years. It's a long time. Now... He is coming off of a brilliant performance at the start of the year. What he did to Calvin Cater, man. That was a historic beating. I don't say that lightly. You know, we're talking about a guy who's only lost his at featherweight since... He um, he lost to Conor McGregor in 2013. So since the year 2014 started, he has lost to exactly one man at featherweight, and that's Alexander Volkanovsky. And there's a real argument he won the second Volkanovski fight. I didn't score it for him, but I acknowledge the argument exists. Other than that, he's beaten everybody. I mean, I could run off the list. It's a mile. I guess as long as your arm. He, beat, he TKO'd Will Chope. He choked out Andre Feely. He TKO'd Clay Collard. He knocked out Akira Khorasani. He beat up Cole Miller. Beat up and choked out Cub Swanson. Stops current... Lightweight champion Charles Oliveira stopped him in the first round. Granted, neck injury, but if those two had a rematch at lightweight, ooh, buddy, that'd be a great fight. Beats Jeremy Stevens, beats Ricardo Lamas, TKO's Anthony Pettis, 
TKO's Jose Aldo in back-to-back fights. Beats the crap out of Brian Ortega and then Featherweight. Beats Frankie Edgar via unanimous decision. Not a close fight. Loses to Volkanovski twice and then puts a historic beating on Calvin Cater. Like, that man. <sighs> Max Holloway is... He is amazing. He really is. It's a testament to his ability and to just how darn good Alexander Volkanovsky is that he beat that guy twice. And tragically, perhaps, might have to do it a third time. If Holloway wins here, I mean, you kind of have to, right? I don't, I mean, I, I hate that. In, only in the following sense, Volkanovski beat that guy twice back-to-back. Again, I will grant you that the second fight was close. It was very close. But if you beat somebody twice, especially if you do it consecutively, to then be made to do it a third time, that's... That just kind of sucks. I'm just going to say that. I mean, I'm sure the fight will be good. I'm sure I will enjoy it, assuming it happens, but... Uh, it does kind of suck. Um, how do I... Yeah, so I've got Holloway here, probably via late stoppage. I think, I think what he does is just too much for someone like Yair Rodriguez. So. All right, as for the rest of this card, this will be faster. Not much here. Um, co-main event, Ben Rothwell and Marcos Rogerio de Lima. I will pick Ben Rothwell, but... Boy, this is going to be ugly. Women's featherweight, Felicia Spencer and Leah Letson. Probably Spencer. I'm going to pick Spencer, but she's 1-3 in the UFC. Like, she had her moment in the sun when she went five rounds against Cyborg and got beat up for five rounds. Um, bantamweight, Song Dong and Julio Arce. Song's bantamweight debut? Hang on. Um, no, I think he's been at Bantamweight for a bit. Uh, Song's coming off of a split decision win over Casey Kenny. Could have gone either way, but his only loss in the UFC uh, is to Kyler Phillips. Whereas Arce... Julio Arce is an underappreciated guy. He's been trading wins and losses for most of his UFC run, but he's not an easy out for anybody. A lot of that was at featherweight, though. He won his bantamweight debut when he beat Andre Ewell. He stopped him. Hey, my, my inclination here is Song. Uh, I think I think Song's a th- Song's a really good fighter. So I, I'm gonna pick Song, but I wouldn't sleep on Julio Arce. Let's see, as for the prelims, Tiago Moises and Joel Alvarez. Um, Moises, yeah, he got run over by Islam Makashev in his last fight. But he'd won three in a row before that. He's been up and down in the UFC, but his only losses are to Benil Daryush, top contender, Damir Ismagulov, guy I think has a lot of potential, and Islam Makashev, top contender, possibly your next champion. Um... I'm not trying to sleep on Alvarez. Alvarez also has a loss to Ismagulov. 
has won three in a row. I think the counterbalancing point here is, or the kind of countervailing point, he's beaten not guys not on the level that uh, Moises has beaten. So I'm gonna go with Moises here, but that that's not a bad fight. Women's flyweight: Cynthia Calvillo and Andrea Lee. Poor Andrea Lee. Um, lost a couple of split decisions. Uh, to Joanne Calderwood and Lauren Murphy. I thought she won both of those fights. Uh, to be perfectly candid. Um, yeah, that, that kind of sucked for her. That really halted her momentum. She had a three-fight winning streak going into the Calderwood fight. That was a good fight. I thought she won. And then the fight with Murphy, I definitely thought she won that. That one I remember being a little bit miffed by. Um, she lost cleanly to Roxanne Modafferi. There wasn't a whole lot of debate around that decision. But she beaten, you know, she submitted Antonina Shevchenko in her last fight. Um, Calvillo on a two-fight losing streak. I'm going to pick Lee. I think, look, Calvillo is probably going to win, which makes my pick a little bit awkward. But hear me out. I think Calvillo's kind of been figured out. I don't think she quite has the, I don't know, like, she's lost something from when she debuted and had a bunch of hype. Um, I think Lee, Andrea Lee is also a very large flyweight, and I think that's going to be a problem for Calvillo. So, I'm going to go with Lee, but that's probably me picking the underdog. Uh, welterweight fight. This is a pretty good fight, actually. Miguel Baeza and Chaos Williams. If you're not hip to Miguel Baeza, you should get there. He's 10 and 1. His only loss is he's coming off of his only loss when he fought Santiago Ponzinibbio. And that was a it was a unanimous decision. But that was a darn good fight. And I seem to recall Baeza came on strong in the 3rd. I might be misremembering. It was either that or he started really strong and then Ponzinibbio just kind of woke up after the first round. Um, so one of those two, forgive me. Uh, but Baeza's got a lot of upside, whereas Williams... Uh, let's see. Coming off a win over Matthew Semmelsberger. Yeah, this is a good fight. I kind of like Baeza here, but it's a good fight. Let's see, featherweight Sean Woodson and Colin Anglin. This is probably Woodson. Yeah, it's Woodson, but yeah. Um, Courtney Casey and Liana Jojua. Mm. Casey's had a rough go of it. I kind of liked her in the Aldrich fight. She lost a split decision there. Like Courtney Casey has a fair amount of ability, but boy, can she not find any consistency. Um, Jojua done. What that... And that stoppage against Miranda Maverick. She's been out of action for over a year. Um, I'm going to pick Casey, but ever so slightly. And uh, this might be Joe Jua's for the taking. Lightweight, Mark Jacquezi and Rafael Alves. Um, Jacquezi's coming off of a loss to, ha to Rafael Faziv. That was a funny fight, man. Faziv kind of styled on him. Um, Jacques is one of those guys the UFC wants to be better than he is. 
So this is probably a rebound fight for him. I, I'm going to pick him here, but uh, some of these guys that the UFC keep around hoping they'll get better never do, and we might be at that point. And at light heavyweight, Kennedy and Zechiku will fight Da Eun Jung. Didn't Jung fight recently? Back in April. I'm confusing him with someone else, so I apologize. Um, hmm. And Zechiku seems to have found a bit of himself. He's on a three-fight winning streak. I feel like I should pick Jung just because I can. Jung's never lost in the UFC either. Hmm. Yeah, screw it. I'll pick Jung and I'll be I'll just be wrong. Probably. Alright, uh, a few fights that we don't have a bout order for because some of these are replacements. Kyle Dawkus and Roman Delidze. Um, Dawkus needs a win pretty badly. He's coming off of a a no contest that ah, I feel bad for him in that one, man. I really do. Whereas Delidze, uh, Delidze is coming off a win over Loriano Staropoli. I'm gonna pick Dawkus, but eh, might be wrong about that. Uh, Danilo Marquez and Jolton Almeida, probably go with Marquez. A featherweight fight, Lando Venata was supposed to be on this card. He was supposed to fight Tucker Lutz. Um, don't know if there's going to be a replacement for Venata. Felipe Linz was supposed to fight. Who was he supposed to fight? Ovin St. Preux. Ovin St. Preux is still on the roster. <sighs> okay. Um... Ovin St. Preux is out. Again, there's no word on who will replace him. I feel okay picking both Venata and Linz in the dark. So, assuming those fights even remain on the card. Um, which they might not, so. Yeah, I will have coverage of that Saturday. So, November 13th, be back here. UFC, uh, for UFC and ESPN plus 55. I will be in the MMA zone of 411mania.com per usual. All right. I'm going to check Twitter, see if anything crazy news-wise is broken. If not, we're over two hours. We will do plugs and get out of here. Okay, wait. Sorry. I just discovered a random factoid, and this relates to UFC 268. Trevor Whitman fighters went 3-0 and on the main card. That's Justin Gaethje, Rose Namajunas, and uh, Kamaru Usman. All won their fight. If you took a parlay for all three of those fighters to win... The odds were plus 287. So good return on your money. If you took all three of them to win by decision, the payout was huge, like plus 6,650. That's nuts. It's nuts. It's crazier that it happened. You know, you would have thought at least one of... There was a good chance at least one of those would have gone the... Uh, would have gone the di would have been a finish, but all three of them went the distance. Uh, and if you took that bet, boy, did you get paid. And you know, to be fair, that's not a that wasn't a bad bet, all things considered. Um, Gaethje and Chandler was probably the least likely of those to go the distance, but I think if that got out of the first round, it was probably going to go all three. So you probably, if you took that bet, man, you cashed a big check. And I salute any of you who chose to do so. Just 
needs to be said there. Alright, nothing new, so plugs. Let's see. Last week, I did a couple of things. Um, there was a Damn You Hollywood for... Oh, crud, what was it? Uh, Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, and one for Damn you, and one for Last Night in Soho. So if you're interested in that, please look up Damn You Hollywood on your preferred podcasting platform. You can find those. Uh, I was also part of a triple feature that Mark Radlich and I did. Not completely, ad, uh, not completely uh, impromptu, but... A little bit out of our traditional wheelhouse of podcasting, we did a triple feature for a bunch of Oscar nominees and winners uh, from last year. We did Nomadland, Mank, and The Father. So if you want our thoughts on higher class cinema, such as it exists, uh, give that a listen. We had a lot of fun with that one. This week, Damn You Hollywood on Tuesday for The Eternals, the latest Marvel movie. That is dividing fans and uh, fans, critics, and everyone alike. So tune in. We're going to have a four-person panel. Myself, Mark Radulich, Alexis Haina, and David Wright. We're going to talk that movie. Should be interesting. We seem to... Ha- uh, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause some discussion. Uh, do I have anything else? Oh, Friday. I, was, I took part in a Star Trek retrospective w- along with David Wright for the Kelvin years. Uh, that's the most recent reboot saga that they've been putting out. And uh, that's finally going to hit the airwaves. We recorded that a while ago, but the editing process takes time. So this Friday, that's going to go live. If you want myself and David Wright talking uh, all things start latest Star Trek reboot, give it a go. Should be a lot of fun. I had a, I had a lot of fun recording it. Also, my usual slate of coverage, professional wrestling for AEW on Monday, MLW on Wednesday, WWE on Friday. And the UFC event on Saturday, so I hope you will see me on all of those. Those are in the wrestling and MMA zones of 411 Mania, depending on which event I'm covering. Next week, we'll be back here to review UFC on ESPN Plus 55, and I think that's it. Nope, we will preview, in fact, UFC on ESPN Plus 56. Boy, is that a crappy card. Um, Okay, there's one good fight. Sorry, that needs a minor... Adjustment. Michael Chiesa and Sean Brady is going to be a heck of a fight. But that card is headlined by Ketlin Vieja and Misha Tate, so... That should tell you a fair bit. Anything else on that card? Ah, Loma Lukbunmi. Usually good for a decent fight. Hani Yaya and... Ronnie Yaya is how he prefers, actually. And Kyung Ho Kong might be interesting. Yeah, it's it's not a good card. It's not a terribly compelling. It's just not a compelling card. I don't know what else to say. I'm here to tell the truth. So we'll give a full preview of that next week, and we'll see if anything's changed between now and then. All right. Until then, I thank you all again very very much. Stay safe out there, and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>